Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Christy Johnson. Christy is an intrapreneur, entrepreneur, and strategist. She is currently building her fourth startup, Artemis Connection, a boutique strategy consulting firm passionate about helping innovative leaders reach their goals. She loves working for forward-thinking executives who want results. Recently, she designed and launched a course on women in entrepreneur leadership for the University of Washington. She has also facilitated courses on strategy, critical analytical thinking, storytelling, and designing organizations for creativity, innovation at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. She has seven years of experience working in corporate strategy, including nearly four years at McKinsey and Company. Before this, she was an award-winning economics and mathematics teacher. In 2005, Junior Achievement recognized Christy as its National Teacher of the Year. She loves to travel, read, play strategy board games, and explore the world with her twin boys, daughter, and husband. Welcome, Christy. You're not busy at all. I'm like reading that. I'm like, do you have twins or something? Are you like two people? How do you find time for all this, girl? Oh my goodness. <laughs> so days, I wonder. I mean, I love what I do, so it makes it a lot easier. Yeah, and you you're... make it look easy. Oh my, you should see my house. <laughs> it's such a disaster. I know. I love that we're joking as moms that you're like, okay, kids, keep it down in the other room. Everybody's got like, I don't even know if you heard during the intro, I had like one of the kids walk in. It's like COVID world. I did not hear it. And exactly. That's what we're dealing with. I mean, hopefully <laughs> that'll be one of the legacies as we realize people have lives outside of work. Yeah, exactly. And I think that we will raise a nicer generation. Like these kids are going to have to have some grit. They're learning early that like not many things are predictable. Like while we plan, you know, ha ha. <laughs> exactly. Right? I love it. Yeah. So let's start with some rapid fire. Um, this was fun for me because I have so many questions for you and we love to spend time together. So um, I'll try to keep it tight. But um, I'm curious, what is your pet peeve? I don't have a lot of patience for just intolerance <laughs> and people who you're very judgy right off the bat about the way somebody looks or who they are. So I, that's a really big pet peeve and it usually gets me into trouble because I'll say something pretty directly. I think that's important. We have to hold each other accountable right now, right? Make, our, make us all nicer and more tolerant. Yeah. Um, what is a common misconception about you? Uh, ooh. I mean, I often get told that People assume I'm nice, but what, the feedback I got once when I was working in strategy consulting is I'm, I'm like a feather with spikes. I was like, I don't know how to take that piece of feedback. And they're like, oh, you seem so fluffy and nice and energetic, but like, you'll still directly say things to people. I'm like, totally. That's my yeah. obligation. I asked you that question because that was my exact impression of you was like, not like you're just like so sweet and so nice and you speak with a smile and you're so disarming. And then I was like, 
randomly looking on LinkedIn. I'm like, we have over a thousand people in common. I'm like, you're a master networker and a master connector. And I don't know that right away, first impression, I would have known your um, kind of intensity around connecting with people. And I felt so connected to you. I thought it was just a me thing. And then I realized that's a Christy thing. <laughs> that's it's my sister and I are very, very different. Um, but one of our friends who knows both of us said the thing that's common about both of us is that we all know everyone. And I was like, oh, yeah. and I was like, that's totally a, my parents thing. Cause they're yeah. like, they love people. They yeah. taught us to love people. Um, yeah. and they like to connect. I love that. That's exactly my parents too. My house was kind of grand central growing up. So, um, what advice I'm sure you've asked and answered this question before, but what advice would you give your younger self? I think the biggest piece of advice that I would give my younger self is I put a lot of pressure um, to figure out the work and family thing. And so I remember being in like my late teens, early 20s, mapping out, okay, I need to go to grad school by this day. And then I need to figure out where I'm going to work so I can establish myself for a couple of years if I want to have kids by this age. And it was just so much pressure um, to map all those things out. And my career took a completely different turn than I ever would have guessed. And like, the kid thing turned out differently than I would have expected to. I mean, I wasn't planning on having twins, but it's all worked out the way it was meant to be. And I think, especially in my twenties, I put a lot of pressure on myself with my career and schooling. Yeah. I wish I hadn't. That's so interesting because I have a daughter who's kind of like that. And I'm like, just be like, it, it, it kind of naturally flows. Anyway, I think there's, it's good to have intention, but yeah. Um, are you an introvert or an extrovert? I bet I'm split because I love people so much, but if I've been with people for a long time, I need to like be away from people. Yeah. My husband says I'm the most extroverted introvert he knows. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm the same exact way. What is the most common book, movie, or podcast that you find yourself recommending to others? I, I really like Acting with Power by Deb Grunfeld. And she was, she talks about how we all have more power than we think. And then she has some really interesting nuggets because I think women sometimes wrestle with leaning into their power or being comfortable with power that are, are good to think through. So I've been recommending that one a lot this week. Acting with power. Okay. Good to know. What is your biggest fear? The world right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I probably wake up at 2 or 3 a.m. just thinking about in particular, the legacy we're leaving the youth and, and yeah. all the problems are going to have to be fixed. Yeah. Well, we need more Christie's and then we can uh, not be so fearful. What is your favorite board game? I love that I read that in your intro. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, what have we been playing a lot of lately? Uh, we, well, Settlers of Catan forever. We love that game. We've actually started playing Pandemic. My family's very competitive and it's a cooperative game, but it's, it's like this love-hate relationship because you're trying to beat time in order to like squash the pandemic and it's a little bit too close to home with what we're dealing with right now. Yeah, I'm like, it sounds a little scary. Is there a vaccine at the end? Say yes. <laughs> Yes. If you play it right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. So tell me, um, we've had little talks about kind of how we grew up. I know you grew up in this area in Seattle. Um, tell me about your childhood. Like where did, it sounds like your family was super warm and inclusive. Um, are you more like your dad or your mom? I actually grew up in Whatcom County, so much farther north. Uh, yeah. Ferndale, which is north of Bellingham. Um, and I'm like a good mix of both of them. So I think 
what I so appreciate about my parents is they love learning. My mom was a teacher uh, and that was always really valued. And then my dad was more of an entrepreneur. So I remember being, you know, a little kid and going to meetings with him and mm -hmm. thinking it was like so interesting getting to hear the conversations and at the same time swearing I would never be a teacher and I would <laughs> never be an entrepreneur. <laughs> so it's kind of ironic how it unfolds. Yeah. Well, you talked about when we were just talking in our rapid fire about the direction of your career and how it took a shift. Like, what did you think you were going to be? I mean, I think that this theme of learning, like I've always, I was very drawn to academia. So originally I was like, oh, maybe I'll, I'll go get a PhD, like in economics. So that led me to take a lot of economics and math classes. And then I was in a, an econ class where they showed that degree doesn't pay off. Mm. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Yeah. As well as trying to figure out how I'd have children if I was going to get a PhD and have to go up to tenure back to that theme of like overly planning. Um, and then it, it was kind of this theme of, and again, this is both of my parents, like really wanting to get back to society. And I was incredibly grateful for some teachers that I had had. Um, Ferndale's a very small town. And when I was there, 10% went on to college. And that's if you include community college. And wow. There are a few teachers. 10%, just, 10% and you're like, and you went to Western, right? And then I went to Western. Yep. Financially. And wanted to just stay close to home and, and have a more affordable school. No, uh, I was, I was planning to go away. <laughs> did you get, did you get good grades in high school? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had really good grades. I mean, it was, and I had decent SAT scores. And it, it, I mean, again, like this is small town, right? I remember the guidance counselor saying, oh, you think you want to be a doctor? Like, how would you do that with having children? Maybe you should think about being a nurse. They just, it felt like I was consistently being kind of dampered. And I remember one, one, one teacher saying, have you heard of consulting? Like you love to travel, consultants get to travel all the time. I didn't really know what that was. Um, I was planning to go away uh, to another school and then my senior year, everything fell apart financially for my parents. Um, this is why I swore I'd never be an entrepreneur. My father did very well and then did very poorly. And he'd had some partnership disputes and hadn't filed his taxes. And um, you can't, as a, a student, apply for financial aid if your parents haven't filed their taxes. Oh. And so I had this option of, well, I could emancipate myself <laughs> or I could live at home, get a mm -hmm. job the Monday after graduation and go to Western. And Did you know, it ended is up that one of out. those life um, kind of dips that uh, you would say was one of the most pivotal? Oh, absolutely. Um, did that put a strain on your relationship with your family or was it like now I better kind of contribute to try to save everybody? I think that that's like this, this constant theme because for my father, the business started to, to really struggle when I was in sixth grade. So I was, you know, 11, 12 and, um, and my parents are wonderful people and I love them. And so I was like, well, wh what can I do? Well, I can contribute, right? I can go get babysitting jobs. I can dog sit. I can, you know, my mom will write an IOU when she takes cash out of my bank account and I'll just like rip it up. It's no big deal if it doesn't get paid back. Um, and so for me, work was always, I think, something I could control in some ways. And it also like let me feel that I could contribute and help out. So mm -hmm. it, was, it was very formative having it happen during those years. And then I wasn't super happy to be at Western, to be totally honest. <laughs> um, it was 15 miles from home and 
Yeah. But it ended up being great. I mean, I, I, there were, I had access to professors because it wasn't an R1. I started getting to do some research. I was pulled in on, you know, national presentations, like things yeah. that probably wouldn't have happened if I'd been at a bigger school. Yeah. I did what graduate did you, with What that. did you study? I, I studied econ and mm. then I had minors in like math and social studies and business. Yeah. Those are smart um, majors. You know, having been in recruiting for 26 years, it's less looked at for certain roles. Um, and also, you know, having recruited in San Francisco and New York, where it was very common to hear about people out of schools like Stanford and some of the Ivy League schools going on to companies like Bain and Company and McKinsey, it was like a very common path. Um, did you find that some of the people that you met in those environments were snobby about schools? Uh, some were. Because it's a very pedigreed path. And of course, then you went on to get a master's and MBA um, in education from Stanford. So you're, you know, you've obviously been highly educated, but it is just an interesting kind of um, formation of your resume to be like, oh, now she's got Stanford and McKinsey. It does put you in a whole new league as far as you know, the type of access we get as recruiters um, and business leaders to technology that can kind of sift out anybody that doesn't have that background. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is funny because I remember it wasn't really crafted. I just, I loved econ. I feel like it's math with people and it explains so much of the world. So I just fell in love with it as a discipline. And I remember some professors saying like, you seem to instinctually get this pretty easily. Um, and there were mostly male classes, but then also saying like grad school wise, you know, Western doesn't really feed into the top schools. I was like, that's okay. Right. So I, I mean, I never imagined I'd end up at Stanford. It was actually a, a total whim. I ended up applying. I had, um, decent test scores. And my husband said, what do you tell your students? Because I was teaching high school, like apply to your dream school. I was like, okay, Stanford. Right. And I was round three, which they don't recommend. And Every step of the way, I was like, oh, no, I got an interview. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I got in. What am I going to do? Because it didn't match with that life plan I had crafted. Right. And did anybody um, kind of take you through the journey as far as um, mentoring you or developing you and giving you kind of the roadmap? With grad like, school? Just all of it. How to, how to get through it, how to navigate, you know, it's kind of taking it to that next level and even just how to get in. I, I did talk to a few other people who had done MBAs. I mean, I'm a huge mm -hmm. fan of, of learning for those who have gone before you. And they, they helped me think through, you know, how do you tell your story in a compelling way? Maybe you have 10 things you want to do in the future, but like pick one for your essays and have a really compelling story. So I did get some of that. And what did you write your essay on? Stanford has this essay that they're notorious for called What Matters Most to You and Why. And at the time, um, it wasn't word constrained. <laughs> so you're like, how long does it need to be? Uh, so I, I wrote mine around honest relationships um, and how I think it's really important to be honest with people about what's happening and how they're showing up and how it's impacting you, but that you can do that in a way that's still very kind. I'm sure they loved you. I can imagine that you're an incredible teacher, and I know that you are teaching at UW now. I want to get into that. But um, 
So when you graduated, is that right when you went to McKinsey? Like they recruited you straight out? Yeah, so I had been introduced to McKinsey kind of during this, this preterm time. My husband was at Washington Mutual at the time, and this was 05 to 07. Um, so glory years for the mortgage industry and subprime loans, and he was managing risk, uh, and they wanted him to stay. And so he stayed up here in Seattle. I was down in the Bay Area. And, you know, I loved it down there. I must say, like, Silicon Valley is a very special place, especially if you love innovation and the weather. Um, and so coming back up here was hard uh, at first. Um, and at the time, again, 07, it was McKinsey and Deloitte that had strategy consulting groups. And I had offers from both. But what I noticed about McKinsey was the amount they invested in professional development and problem-solving abilities and the way that people spoke. Um, was just, it, they invest a lot and I wanted that as well as the feedback loops kind of back to that honest communication. Like you get feedback on everything all the time and that's mm -hmm. actually a fantastic way to learn. Oh, and yeah. given I come from a non-traditional background. Yeah. So that I needed that apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. When people are talking about consulting um, and I'm sure that people have misconceptions around what it is, there's so many different types of consulting and even now running a consulting business what is strategy consulting and, and what were some of the engagements that, um, that you were involved in and, and what were the biggest learnings and takeaways from those? Yeah, it, and consulting is a very broad term. I mean, I, I will often talk about strategy consulting or growth and innovation. You know, since then, I realized it was in very entrepreneurial parts of McKinsey. But, you know, when I'm thinking about consulting is if there's some sort of problem an executive is thinking about and the team doesn't have bandwidth or mean, they may not have the right data to be able to crack it. So like you're trying to get an answer to something. And usually it's an executive or a board who has a hunch there's an opportunity and needs some external validation. Um, and then the second part is that you have to get the team to actually do something. Um, so it's, I mean, it's a really fun job because you're getting smart on something new in a very short period of time. Uh, mm -hmm. McKinsey intentionally has people be a generalist the first year because they want you to not lean on knowledge you might already have of an industry, but instead get really good at problem solving and um, client management. Right. So, I mean, I did like oil and gas work. I did media. What else did I do that first and year? And what were some of the industries that you gravitate toward? You said innovation excites you. Um, are there people, I guess you said a generalist, are there people that then become... Um, specialists in like technology strategy consulting? Yeah, or like supply chain, what other areas, business analytics or business intelligence. There's a lot of that right now. So mm -hmm. you can specialize over time or you might specialize in an industry. So after a year, I actually ended up doing quite a bit of healthcare work, which I loved. I mean, right now it's like such a hot area. I'm sure you're doing some of that business with Artemis. Yeah. Um, and so after you left McKinsey, it looks like you had a few stints that were shorter, kind of trying to find your way. What made you leave McKinsey to begin with? Oh, um, so I actually love McKinsey much more than I thought I would have would. And then I had my daughter. So I have, mm -hmm. I have a 10 year old. Um, I adore her. She's and she changed me <laughs> so much. I mean, my mom, I still remember her laughing at me. She's like, you used to hop on a plane with like a minute's notice. I mean, McKinsey sent me to the Middle East with like two days notice and I could come home once a month and I was so excited. 
And then this, this little being shows up in my life and I'm like, I do not want to step on a plane. Um, And I knew with the Seattle office, I was going to be traveling all the time. And that isn't how I wanted to be as a mom. And I just didn't see a path forward Um, at the firm at the time, if I wanted to stay in client services. So I was, I had this kind of, yeah, I hopped around a lot. Um, And I, and it was primarily former people I used to work with calling me up because they needed a strategy. So they needed to crack something and they needed the team turned around to execute it. And I was, I was never looking when I'd get a call to go join someplace else, but they'd make me these really amazing offers. And a few of them were very good at saying like, you need to do this for your career. (laughs) And so I would say yes. Did you think, is that the first time when they started to say that to you, that you started to see yourself in that light as an entrepreneur? Or did you kind of know, even though you said, because of your dad, I'll never do this. Like at what stage did you go, I kind of want to be an entrepreneur? Uh, I definitely was not saying it at that stage. (laughs) I was like, it's so nice to have the stability of a company. But then in retrospect, I'm like, but the group I was running was like incubating a SaaS company and we had a hardware accelerator and we were driving the innovation groups internally. Mm-hmm. So I was basically doing it with the security of a big company. And in retrospect, I'm like, that was helping me learn and get more confident. Um, I mean, the moment honestly was really out of necessity with a uh, good, uh, and I, I should back up. I had the twins and I would dabble, right? So the other startups I was involved in, two guys from grad school, because it's Stanford, right? And they're like, we have servers in our dorm room and we're working on a mobile food ordering app. And you're like, that's cool. And they say, we need help. And I'd be like, okay, sure, right? And then you realize after watching a few startups and and helping where you can, that it's actually incredibly fun. Um, And so by taking more of these traditional jobs, I was able to build up savings. And then when life made it really difficult for me to stay in traditional corporate, meaning my twins showed up and they were early. Yeah. I was like, I guess now's the time. What do I have to lose? Right. It's either I do nothing or not do nothing, but raise two twins <laughs> and not yeah. work or yeah. I create something that works for me. Yeah. And so it was just you and you alone in the very beginning, you bootstrapped it. Yeah. And how did you go about getting uh, I mean, I guess because you're the connector and because you've got your network of Stanford, was that what you kind of depended on or did you come up with some sort of strategy around how to go acquire a new business? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in the beginning, I, I had a, a, a framework or a way I was thinking about the business. So there was a problem I was obsessed with. <laughs> and you'll hear startup founders talk about this. And then I wanted to validate and see if there was a there there. And I think what's been a bit challenging was the problem I was obsessed with was actually more on the talent side of the house. And I, I didn't want to charge the talent. So meaning what I saw is I was, you know, at home dealing with preemie babies, I had lots of doctor's appointments. Um, but there's a lot of talent that wasn't working to their full potential and needed some flexibility, but still wanted hardcore work. And at first I was like, oh, maybe this is just me, but I realized it was much broader. And then as I interviewed that group, uh, did it, they didn't want to have to do like the biz dev because it's a grind. <laughs> and didn't want to have to deal with contracting because that's not really fun or getting people to pay you on time. So the, the, I was hoping originally we could help companies manage that, which would be 
hey, it's a tight labor market. There's actually this talent that would participate. They just need some different structural things. And I, I wanted to consult around that. Mm-hmm. So my goal was to have 40 conversations a week, 15 to 30 minutes where people would just push on the idea. And again, I'm so lucky that I have like Stanford and McKinsey because it's, it's pretty easy to get people to talk to you. Um, and most of them said no. <laughs> we would not pay anything you know, for that. You, I didn't know that this was where you started because um, having been in recruiting for so long, I've had two friends kind of spin out and try to start that type of business. And I think we're now with COVID and remote work, people are probably more ready than ever. I'm sure you're busy and we'll get into that. But it's like there, was, there were the candidates, but the companies couldn't wrap their head around it for some reason. It's so old school now that, I mean, this year forced a lot of change in in work. Yeah. So originally that was a group right in front of me were these, these moms, but I actually quickly realized it was much broader. So I started meeting men who wanted to parent and be more involved. Um, I started meeting, and I think this is going to hit really hard, our generation, people dealing with aging parents, because like the doctor's appointments there can look very similar to... Uh, having small children. Mm. And then the thing, the other two areas that really surprised me, one was around non-urban areas. So I'd start to find like amazing talent in the Midwest or in Eastern Washington. And they'd say, there's no, there aren't strategy jobs here, right? They're like the biggest company is. Mm -hmm. I was like, huh, that's interesting. And then the other one would be um, just anybody wanting part-time work because with part-time work, you're seen as being, you know, not as smart or not as committed. Right. And that there's people who want part-time work because they like to travel or they're really civically involved or they have their own startup that they're working on and they just need some revenue to come in so they can bootstrap longer. Yeah. I'm constantly meeting people that fit that um, kind of description. And I tell them about Artemis because I'm like, this is perfect. And I know that through your network and through your hard work, you've built quite a business. So tell me a little bit more about it. What is the business model and what do you guys specialize in? Yeah, sure. So again, we had this like six months where I'm trying to get people to activate this talent. They're all telling me no, (laughs) or they're like, you can run a training for a thousand dollars. And so then I started to ask, well, what would you pay us for? (laughs) And they would share that, you know, the fact that about a third of us come from McKinsey, Bain, BCG, if you look in the lower to mid market space, there are a lot of boutique firms, but there aren't firms that have that national reach or even international reach. And, you know, it ends up being actually a pretty compelling story. And we were excited about it too, which is, you know, if, if you believe in capitalism, I do, <laughs> that it, that depends on competition. And we actually really need our lower and mid market companies being able to compete with the bigger companies. Uh, and so that's uh, probably a third of our work is lower to mid-market private equity, like not a space I thought we would be in. Um, another third's actually in like quasi-government foundation. Uh, so again, an area where they're wanting to be more entrepreneurial and think, think through trends, thinking about how they're investing, uh, making some bets for three to five years out. And then the last third would be actually big companies, but they're non-core areas. So uh, the education group at a high-tech company doesn't have the budget to bring in a McKinsey, Bain, or BCG, but they're still wrestling with some of the same strategy projects on where should we compete and how do we price. So that's, those are the types of things that we end up helping with. 
Mm -hmm. And are you just doing, you're doing also the market research as far as comparative um, research to show them what other companies are doing or just taking the ideas that they have and figuring out a way to push them forward or kind of both? Um, definitely both, right? Trying to get good customer feedback. Uh, in, in some cases, if they tend to grow through acquisition, identifying targets um, and, and prepping them to, to do some more acquisitions. So it's, mm -hmm. it's pretty fun. Yeah, it sounds really fun. And how do you guys differentiate yourselves as far as when you're, I know that right before this call, you just did a pitch. Like, who are you up against? Are there other, lots of other Artemis type of models out there? And why, would, why do they pick you? Yeah, something that we're, we're constantly wrestling with. What, what I consistently hear are a couple of different things. I think one, the fact that like we do obsess about getting a good answer and making sure that, it, that the strategy ties to the financials, like when do you have to make investments and write checks. And then the second part of working with the team, so the team feels really comfortable with it. Some other consulting firms will keep that a little bit black box. They won't like openly share as, as many of the assumptions. So those are kind of two differentiators. The third and the fourth are around just speed. So we try, and again, because we're in lower to mid-market, stuff will come up quickly, right? Like we have an LOI signed to buy this company. We grow through acquisition. We need to make sure there's enough other companies that we can acquire in this geography. Can you spin up a team tomorrow and be ready to go? Or like the deal is closing in three days and I need a team on the ground to help us figure out what we really bought. So mm. that the speed that we can staff teams seems to be a place where we end up beating some of our competitors. That's kind of a third reason. And then the fourth, and this has huge implications from an operational standpoint, but we were still willing to do it, was lots of times in these smaller to mid-market companies, you, you just need to turn strategy on for a moment in time. So we're not constantly trying to sell, <laughs> which they appreciate. And obviously that means that like our pipeline needs to be bigger and operationally we need to be able to staff and disband teams quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, but that we heard people really appreciate that because they, they felt with some of the other strategy firms, they're trying to get in there for 10 years. Yeah. Uh, and then they millions. constantly upsell and yeah. yeah, that makes sense. And the scope changes constantly. Yeah. That would be, I think probably the hardest part as far as my friends who do consulting is getting the scope right um, so that there's not kind of the scope creep of like, oh yeah, we said this. And then where they're kind of throwing in the 10 other things and you're like, how do I have that conversation? Do you find those conversations difficult or have they gotten easier over time? Just like the negotiation piece. You should ask my team. I think biggest goal they're putting on my dashboard for 2021 is to be better at scoping. It's really hard. Yeah. Especially when you love the client and we, we select our clients based on values um, and you want them to win and they keep asking you for things out of scope. It's, it's pretty easy to go over quite quickly. Yeah, I would imagine. And so what's your actual role? Like if I was just kind of um, watching you day to day besides being super mom, um, what type of activities are you doing versus the consultants that you have out on jobs? This is a place where I've asked, you know, other people who are, are building firms, I find, especially if they're a few years ahead of me, they can help me anticipate. I feel like I'm consistently trying to figure out our biggest point of constraint um, and just try to clear that 
uh, that what that ends up looking like. I mean, in our world, we have to have quality work and we consistently have to deliver a quality experience for our clients. So there's implications for ops and tools. Um, business development, I think, you know, as the founder, like that always is something you have on your plate or what I've been hearing from everyone is you always have that on your plate. I love meeting new people. So I, I do draw quite a bit of energy from that. And then there's like these other strategic things that'll come up. Like, I mean, pre-COVID, we had a few um, folks talk about strategic partnerships that I hadn't really thought about. Uh, are there areas where we should productize a little bit more? Um, we've had some people approach us about acquiring them. So there's like other stuff that always comes up that's more strategy that I end up doing quite a bit of. Mm -hmm. I personally, and I think this is different from other strategy firm founders I've talked to, I also like to always stay involved in at least one project yeah. um, just because I think it keeps it really fresh on like what the work is right. and who it is that we're serving. So I usually have at why, least 20 hours. It's also yeah. why you got into it. Like I love touching um, searches. You know, I'm not in them doing the like active interviews and submittals of the candidates and stuff, but I love the intake calls with the clients, learning what they're looking for and, and even meeting with some candidates because um, like why I started the business. I love what I do. So I totally get that. And I think it makes you a better leader if you can empathize and understand some of the challenges that your team may be facing. How has um, COVID impacted your business? like financially and emotionally? I'm super grateful because I think, especially in March and April, when we, we started to hit shelter in place, a lot of our clients actually realized it's, it's hard to do some of the things that we do. So it's, it's hard to problem solve in a virtual environment. It's hard to ideate. Um, but we've been doing it for five and a half years. So we actually, this will probably be our best year in terms of both revenue and profitability. And then I think for the team, like, it was actually, they have realized that there are some things that we've figured out that are actually like pretty great. And so the team has really come together this year too. Uh, there were some moments during the summer where I think were a little bit more challenging um, just with the team because normally we encourage people to do those things to recharge them outside of work, like see people in person and travel and be outside. And those were just all taken away. So I think that just the general level of anxiety for everybody has been higher this year. Mm -hmm. um, but like financially, it's going to be a pretty good year. And then That's emotionally, awesome. it's tiring. Has it forced any sort of pivot? I mean, I know you talked about pre-COVID, some of the ideas, but pivot as far as some of the requests that you're getting, like I would imagine they're around change and like what you're hearing about trends as far as you know the future of work yeah and that was that was a big part I, I feel like q2 was scenario planning right like how many different ways could the future unfold i feel like right now there's a lot more of help us understand trends that are being accelerated because that's what this year is doing. It's accelerating mm -hmm. some trends that were already in place. And how then can we try to be active in shaping the future we want instead of passively reacting, which mm -hmm. I think some folks are realizing this is probably going to go on for a, a while. And so getting the team moving again will be a good thing. Mm -hmm. So we definitely switch the mix of work quite a bit. And what are some of the trends? I mean, are they around 
I don't know if you do stuff in this, but I, I would imagine from where I sit, there's um, challenges around, you know, engagement and people feeling like those intersections of, like you're talking about ideating and innovation, those things kind of happen more often in person, even just the whiteboarding um, or the walking past somebody to grab a coffee, you know, in the office. Do, do those things come up of, uh, as far as companies just being like completely confused or lost about the direction? Yeah, there's definitely a lot around that. I think um, this other trend around mental health and maybe the workplace needs to think differently about mental health because that was actually one of the biggest surprises for me early on with running a remote company was uh, we had people quit because of loneliness. Right. Mm. And what we try to do as much as possible to replicate a workplace, it's not the same on video. Um, and so we're definitely seeing that like, and loneliness is very bad for your mental health. And so we're seeing some companies asking about that and trying to figure out the role that they should play. I think a second, especially in high tech is um, concern about regulation, uh, both domestically and internationally. And like, what are the changes going to be there? And I think the third, which is particularly hard for small to medium-sized companies, is um, kind of technology acceleration, so automation. Totally. Right? Like if yeah. you're running a restaurant or a chain of hotels and you're shut down for a couple of months, it's a good time to think about maybe to automate certain things because then you don't have to worry about people being close to each other and like mm -hmm. giving COVID to each other. Mm -hmm. So that's the other trend that's requires a capital investment and um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out during over time. Totally. And um, outside of Artemis, I know that you are a mentor, you're a teacher, you do some nonprofit work. How do you prioritize these things and what kind of, um, I guess, lens or vetting process do you go through to figure out how to spend your time and what's got the biggest kind of ROI? And it's one of those things too. I remember somebody saying in my early 20s, like, never say no to an opportunity because you don't know when it will right. come by again. But as we get older, it's more about, um, you know, instead of FOMO, it's, it's like, what's that? JOMO, the joy of missing out almost. Yes. Like creating these boundaries, which is really hard for me. At the beginning of 2019, I think I said, I'm just going to say that, you know, I'm oversubscribed this year or I'm overcommitted or whatever. And just stick with that and just see, um, which was really hard. Because when you're doing a lot, those are the people that people ask to do more because they see you being an action person. Um, what gives you the most fulfillment? Like, is there, what's the filter? Yeah, and I tend to think in terms of like three themes. And so that's it. And if it doesn't fit in that theme, I say not right now. Yeah. And maybe those themes will change over time. And then to your point of energy management, I, I have been thinking a lot more about energy management. I mean, yeah. obviously the business takes a lot of time. My kids, we're all together all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so they you're, take you're a lot all, of time. Caught up with the family. What are the three themes? Yeah, so I, this one theme would be around entrepreneurial leadership. Um, and that's led to the work with the University of Washington, which mm -hmm. actually is incredibly energizing and I love it. Mm -hmm. um, I think a second around racial justice and anything that can advance that work. And then the third right now is um, 
public education. And they, it ends up being linked, right? But I, I worry a lot about what's happening with our schools and the gap widening given how long completely. we- Oh, yep, completely. Yeah. Tell, tell me a little bit more. I know that I've come on as a guest speaker for your um, entrepreneurial class, but tell me a little bit more about who that is geared toward and what's included in that curriculum. I think this for me was, you know, just this, I'm never going to be an entrepreneur stance that I had. But then again, when I look back through my career, I'm like, well, if we had defined entrepreneurial the right way, I actually would have leaned into this. And so the goal of the class is that we kind of take the word entrepreneurial back from Silicon Valley and back from high tech. And, and all it is, is like you see a problem in the world that you want to solve and you want to solve it in a way that creates some value and you do it and you get results, right? I mean, Shauna, you're certainly that kind of person with what you built with Fuel. And the other thing that we noticed was um, a lot of the programs are very expensive. So we keep the course sits in professional and continuing education. So it's about 8% the cost of a master's degree, which is great because then it can be a lot more um, attainable and accessible. And then the, the other part was a lot of the other programs require you to have an idea already or have a company. Well, what if you don't? <laughs> what if you're just curious about like what's going on in the entrepreneurial space? So that, that's what we bring in. And then we define it very broadly, which is you can certainly found a company and if it's venture backed, you'll get all the attention, right? And there are some pros or cons of taking venture capital. Like, let's make sure that we're really upfront about that. You could be an early stage employee, which is like desperately needed. And early stage employees get to be very entrepreneurial because they have to, and it's a great way to learn. And maybe you love being the number two, and that's fantastic because there mm -hmm. are founders that would want to meet you. And then this idea of, of being um, an investor. So we started to find that a lot of the wealthy women are often talked to about philanthropy, but not so much about investing. So how do you kind of break that down a little bit more? And then this last component of being an entrepreneur. So you could be within a, a larger company and more of the innovation group or the entrepreneurial group. And that's still a great place for your career that maybe mm -hmm. has a little bit or quite a bit less risk. So that's what it is that we're doing. That's really cool. And so what is like, um, those are all the things that you cover, but what are the lessons and how frequently do they meet? Yeah. So when we were doing the research and talking to the different women, we found that women are busy, <laughs> right? And a lot of the life stuff ends up falling on us too. So we set it up in a hybrid model, which I was pretty skeptical of at first because the work I've done at Stanford has been 100% online. And then the work I did pre-MBA was 100% in the classroom. So this is a hybrid, meaning we pre-record and take topics that are critical to understand um, just to be in this space. And we have kind of three to five minute videos that you can watch at your own pace and then some exercises for you to practice and see if you've got it. And then we have six class sessions that um, are in person when we can meet in person and online for this year. And that's a chance for us to like do many cases, right? So like read about Shauna mm -hmm. <laughs> and should she start Fuel Talent um, and discuss what should happen and then get to hear from the protagonist. It's a chance for us to kind of build some more community and be in this community of learners. It's a chance for us to kind of maybe workshop some things that we weren't quite getting right with just doing posts on a discussion board. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I love it. It's like actually my very favorite way to teach in terms of outcomes, I think there's one around, like there's just jargon that's used in the entrepreneurial 
ecosystem like TAM, right, is learnable. Um, there's some things around finance, again, not hard, but like maybe something you haven't seen before. So we break those elements down. The second's around building networks, because um, that's really important. The entrepreneurial networks are different from the traditional corporate. And then this last part around the joy of being a student is like you get to try some things, take a few risks. Nobody's going to know your grades. I mean, this is pass fail and get a step back and reflect on, do I like that or not? Like, mm. would I, would I want to create or does that actually stress me out? And I enjoy uh, the investing side more. And like, that's where I want to play. So just giving people a chance to experiment again. Um, and that's what I was really grateful for in my time at, at Stanford too. So trying to replicate that for other women. I love this curriculum. I love the whole idea. I can imagine that you'd be great at it. If I wanted to take one of the courses and just pull out like the networks part, I feel like I've got kind of dialed. The finance part has always been a challenge. I never took really finance courses. And it actually, as you know, because of the case study, was something that held me back from starting a company sooner. Um, can people just pull out little minis? And have you ever thought about productizing? the course. Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, that's, that's part of what the, one of the alums, well, actually a small team of alums is doing right now because they're, they are adamant that more women need access to it. And there's this, like, a whole hidden world out there that we're just not introduced to. And so they're thinking through how do we productize it? What are those discrete modules? How do we make sure that we're keeping this environment of women helping women? Cause we need a lot more of that in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and scale it. So, um, to, to be determined what that all ends up looking like, but there's a small team working on it right now of alums. That's really exciting. And, um, because a lot of friends come to me with this type of question, being a recruiter and being an entrepreneur, they want to know, like, um, kind of if, I think they would be good at being an entrepreneur, that type of question. And oftentimes, even if the answer is yes, they feel that maybe just the timing is not right. Do you hear that often that they're like, I know that this is kind of something I want to do, but they kind of constantly every year are like, well, not this year, maybe next year. Absolutely. And I think, look, I did this myself, right? Like, maybe I need to start something, but I don't know. Like, let's stay in these big companies. I haven't ever really owned sales. I haven't really owned operations. Mm. Like, I need, to, I need to go learn how to do that <laughs> instead of just trusting myself. Yeah. And I bet you see this too, Shauna. I have men pitch me all the time. And I'll be like, how much traction do you have? And they'll say, oh, I've scheduled two interviews to talk about our idea. I'm like, that's not traction, right? And then I'll meet women who've been thinking about something for a long time. And they'll be like, oh, it's not really a business. I'm like, what are you talking about? You have like three employees. That's a business. Mm. Oh, it's just a lifestyle business. I'm like, it's still, you still have founded something. Are you hearing from women um, that their biggest fear is usually around sales or is it usually around operations or both? Because I, I do feel like even in your business, you're like, you know, these consultants, they want to deliver the work, but they don't want to deal with the back office. They don't want to deal with generating new revenue. Um, is that a big obstacle for people? I think that's some of it. I think the big, the other part though is a bit deeper around, do I want to have power? Do I want to be influential? What if oh, wow. I fail? What if I mess up? 
will mm. I be able to do this and still take care of the things outside of work? Because so much of the mythology is like the bros and hoodies working mm. 996, right? And do I want to sacrifice all of that? Um, yeah. So I do think it's a bit deeper because you can learn sales. I mean, look, yeah. I've learned sales. I never thought I would be able to do it. Yeah, you're really good at it too. Interesting. Yeah. I hear this all the time at these kind of women events. And um, I do think that's a whole big section. I don't even know what, where to even begin on that. And I know that it's included in your teachings, but just that whole, it, I don't know if it's starting with, how we treat our daughters, you know, and how we get them thinking, um, or what the messages they're learning. And then the other part that I love about it, and why I'm particularly feeling a sense of urgency right now is, look like what, a million women dropped out of the labor market in September, one in four working moms is considering quitting, I think the rest are probably lying. Like, mm. just a sense of agency of Sometimes you have to create your own opportunity and, and you can do that. You can learn mm -hmm. how to do that. And then you can create opportunities for others too. And like, there's yeah. something very rewarding about that that I wish we would talk more about. That part is probably the most rewarding part for me of being an entrepreneur is how, um, how I feel when I feel like my team is really satisfied and really engaged and they feel lucky to work at Fuel. It's just like the best feeling ever. I completely agree. So I'm curious, I started out the podcast asking how you do it all. Um, do you have some sort of ritual that you do daily or weekly to set yourself up for success? Or are you kind of on your heels like most working moms? <laughs> <laughs> Depends on the week. Um, <laughs> I mean, I try, I try to get up earlier. I'm a big sleep person. So I try to get up earlier kind of before everyone else and if yeah. I can squeeze in a workout, even if it's only 15 minutes, but just something. And then also yeah. reading because that like usually grounds me and gets me ready for the day. Um, I think there's a second part, like usually on Sunday, I'll do a look ahead at the week and what are the three most important things? If I only get those three things done this week, like what are they? And I'll write them down. Um, and then I'm super fortunate with my partner, like my my husband's always been a huge champion of my career and, uh, you know, he, we kind of shift our day so we can be parent on point at different moments in time. And he does a lot of the dinner cooking and the dishes and the laundry. Wow. And I'm really grateful that he's willing to do that. Yeah. That's what, that's what a true partnership looks like. And when the whole lean in movement came years ago, that was a big part of the conversation was like, the men need to lean in too, in order for the women to quote unquote, kind of do it all or have it all. Cause it, it does default to the woman kind of running the household as far as the kids. So exactly. that, that other stuff is really helpful. Um, well, I'm super glad to have you on the podcast. I always end it with asking the ultimate, what fuels you? I get fueled when I see other people believing in themselves and thinking and knowing that they can do some good in the world. So that fuels me. Yeah, I love it. Thank you so, so much. So good to see you. I'm sending big, huge virtual hugs. Thanks for having me. It was good to see you as well. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com. 
to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.